0: a person, look at what was happening in the world when they were 20. That's the idea I want to explore in each episode of Eternal Youth, and today it's George Orwell. But it's not really George Orwell, because George Orwell didn't exist in 1923, when Eric Blair was 20 years old. That pen name was taken on in 1933. Eric Blair invented the name George Orwell to publish an essay called A Hanging, an essay which described his life as an Imperial police officer working on behalf of the British Empire in Burma, now known as As Myanmar. But if you've read Orwell, the chances are you've read 1984, which was published towards the end of his life. And readers would be forgiven for thinking that elements of censorship and propaganda in 1984 were informed by Orwell's time working for the BBC during the Second World War. That's certainly something I believed, I think, for most of my adult life. One of Orwell's jobs at the BBC was to broadcast news about the war to India, which was heavily censored and controlled by the British government. His other job was to organise cultural talks, he invited poets and authors to the BBC to give talks. What he said on the air was controlled, and there was a Room 101 where he was summoned for meetings. But his time working there seems to have been defined by frustration. He told friends that although he couldn't say everything he might have wanted to say on the air, he also never had to broadcast anything he wouldn't have happily said in private conversation. To give you an idea of how he felt, I want to read a diary entry. And as I'm reading this, bear in mind that the BBC currently has a statue of Orwell next to its main entrance. The thing that strikes one in the BBC is not so much the moral squalor and the ultimate futility of what we're doing, as the feeling of frustration, the impossibility of getting anything done, even any successful piece of scoundrelism. Our policy is so ill-defined, the disorganisation is so great, there are so many changes of plan, and the fear and hatred of intelligence are so all-pervading That one cannot plan any sort of wireless campaign whatsoever. One is constantly putting sheer rubbish on the air because of having talks which sounded too intelligent cancelled at the last moment. In addition, the organisation is so overstaffed that numbers of people have almost literally nothing to do. And eventually Orwell leaves, not because of censorship, not because of state control, not because he was being spied on or anything like that, but after seeing some research showing that almost nobody in India was listening to the programmes he was making. They were just very unpopular, or people living in India didn't have radios, and if they did, they didn't want to listen to the BBC. And so I think that to understand Orwell, and his inspiration for 1984, it helps to go back to his early adulthood. Of course, I would say that, wouldn't I? When Eric Blair was 19 years old, I'll probably just refer to him as Orwell for the rest of this, though. But when he was 19, he boarded a ship for the 8,000-mile trip to Burma, where he started work as an imperial policeman. The British East India Company had gained control over parts of Burma through a series of wars and treaties starting in 1824. So by the time Orwell arrived, the British had already been around for almost a century. By colonising Burma, the British get cheap rice, timber and fuel. In 1913, the Burma Oil Company extracted 2 million gallons of oil. It could also act as a buffer between China and British India. But really, it's an afterthought. It's a place where the British are extracting resources, but it's not somewhere to go if you're an imperial careerist. It's not really on the tips of the tongues of the civil servants in Whitehall. No one really cares. It's out of the way. It's not India. In 1919, following the end of the First World War and the Treaty of Versailles, the British award themselves a few of Germany's overseas territories as the spoils of war. And this brings the empire up to its territorial peak. And it now includes a quarter of all land on earth. I don't really know why Orwell chose Burma. He'd been born in India... He had some relatives in Burma. He had studied at Eton. But instead of going to university or going back to India, he goes to Burma and he works as a policeman. We know that Orwell was deeply fond of Kipling and his poem, The Road to Mandalay. The poem is told by a nostalgic British serviceman reminiscing about life in Burma. If you follow British politics, you might remember this is the poem that Boris Johnson was filmed reciting under his breath when he was visiting Myanmar as foreign secretary. It led to a minor diplomatic incident because the people of Myanmar, aren't so nostalgic about Britain's time in the country, and we'll see why soon. Orwell was posted to a small town in the Irrawaddy Delta. It's an outpost. It's about 36 hours on a boat from the capital, Rangoon. And he arrives during a period of national agitation. People are getting sick of the British by now. And the British respond with the Government of Burma Act, which gives the country a legislative council of elected Indigenous representatives. But it doesn't really work. The British are still controlling the country, and there were still protests, including a campaign urging the Burmese not to pay taxes to the British. Historians don't have many first-hand accounts of Orwell's time there. It was before he was writing a diary. There are a few people who remember meeting him, a few letters where he complains about his life, but other than that, most of what we know comes from three pieces of writing, two essays and one novel, which appeared years after he left. The first is called A Hanging. It was published ten years after he left Burma, So we can't be sure if it represents his mood at the time. Maybe he felt differently afterwards and decided to be a bit more harsh on himself and the system there. We don't really know. It's about an execution and it really is just about an execution. We don't learn much about the condemned man or why he's been executed. All we're told is that he is about to be hanged by the British. And this, Orwell later writes, is the moment he decides that he doesn't believe in capital punishment. And the moment that changes his mind isn't the execution itself, but the procession to the gallows. So now I'll read from the essay. And once, in spite of the men who gripped him by each shoulder, he stepped slightly aside to avoid a puddle on the path. It is curious, but till that moment I had never realised what it means to destroy a healthy conscious man. When I saw the prisoner step aside to avoid the puddle, I saw the mystery, the unspeakable wrongness, of cutting a life short when it is in full tide. This man was not dying, he was alive, just as we were alive. All the organs of his body were working, bowels digesting food, skin renewing itself, nails growing, tissues forming, all toiling away in solemn foolery. His nails would still be growing when he stood on the drop, when he was falling through the air with a tenth of a second to live. His eyes saw the yellow gravel and the grey walls, and his brain still remembered, foresaw, reasoned, reasoned even about puddles. He and we were a party of men walking together, seeing, hearing feeling, understanding the same world. And in two minutes, with a sudden snap, one of us would be gone. One less mind, one less world. Another thing that disturbs Orwell, just after the man avoids stepping in the puddle, is a playful dog, which runs onto the courtyard, jumping up and licking the man's face, which seems to make everybody intensely uncomfortable. And the soldiers, the prison wardens, I guess, who are escorting the man, grab the dog and get it away as soon as they can. The man is then led up to the gallows and Orwell describes the horrible tension as they all wait. We stood waiting five yards away. The warders had formed in a rough circle round the gallows and then, when the noose was fixed, the prisoner began crying out to his god. It was a high, recited cry of Ram, 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 not urgent and fearful like a prayer or a cry for help, but steady, rhythmical, almost like the tolling of a bell, the dog answered the sound of a whine. The hangman, still standing on the gallows, produced a small cotton bag, like a flower bag, and drew it over the prisoner's face. The sound muffled by the cloth still persisted, over and over again. Ram, 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 Ram. And then, the man is killed. Orwell goes on to write about how everybody there just wants it to be over as soon as possible. And once it is, there's a sense of immediate relief. There's an immediate dissociation among everybody who's complicit in this execution. He writes, I found that I was laughing quite loudly. Everyone was laughing. Even the superintendent grinned in a tolerant way. You'd better all come out here and have a drink, he said quite genially. I've got a bottle of whiskey in the car. We could do with it. We went through the big double gates of the prison, into the road. We all had a drink together, natives and Europeans alike, quite amicably. The dead man was a hundred yards away. I think there's something quite existentialist about the contrasting moods in this text. It's an essay about the solemn absurdity of the death penalty, which in the 1920s would have been the norm pretty much everywhere in the world. And beyond the exoticism of the condemned man's chant, we don't really learn much about the British in Burma. For that, we need to talk about the elephant in the tomb. The next piece of writing that comes out of Orwell's time in Burma is another essay. It's called Shooting an Elephant. Like a hanging, it's written in the first person. And as he tells it, Orwell is told that there's an elephant on the rampage in a nearby village. And as the only policeman in the area, it's his job to go and deal with it. When he arrives in the village, he sees some damage to a few buildings and listens to some locals complain about an angry elephant on the loose. But it seems to have moved on. Orwell thinks that the elephant was in a bad mood and has probably calmed down by now. The elephant's owner is on his way. But it's going to be a while before he arrives. All Orwell has to do is keep the village safe and calm. Then, just as he thinks he can leave, the locals draw his attention to the body of a man who has obviously just been trampled to death by an elephant. This man, he writes, has the expression of unendurable agony. Then a crowd starts to coalesce around Orwell. The whole village has surrounded him. He has a gun with him to protect himself. But he can feel the will of all these Burmese people urging him to shoot this elephant. The people start following him around and Orwell says that he feels like a fool. The crowd, he says, were there for two reasons. One was for the meat from the elephant, and the other was just entertainment. They were there, says Orwell, for the spectacle. And English people, he says, would have behaved in exactly the same way. And eventually, he sees this elephant grazing peacefully about 80 yards away from the road, and he immediately knows that he doesn't want to shoot it. By now, it seems to have calmed down. It looks as if it's about as dangerous as a cow. Not only are elephants quite graceful in Burma, they're also agricultural assets. Destroying this creature would be like destroying somebody's tractor. What he wants to do is approach the elephant slowly and see if it tries to attack him. The problem for Orwell is that the crowd have seen the elephant too. And because the crowd have seen the elephant, he has to shoot it. Or at least he thinks he has to shoot it. If he walks towards the elephant and it charged and his shot missed, he would be trampled into the mud. He would be killed and more importantly for him at that moment, he would be utterly humiliated. The people there would laugh at him and he has to be seen to be ready to shoot this elephant because his legitimacy as a foreigner with power over these people has come to depend on it. Here's how he describes the situation. To come all this way, rifle in hand, with 2,000 people marching at my heel, and then to trail feebly away having done nothing? No, that would be impossible. The crowd would laugh at me. And my whole life, every white man's life in the East, was one long struggle not to be laughed at what's happening here? Orwell is supposed to be the imperial force, but in this instance, he seems to have lost all agency over what he's doing. In his telling, Empire becomes an act, a performance, in the face of absurdity. And he does shoot the elephant. He doesn't want to, but he does. And when he shoots the elephant, it doesn't die. So he shoots it again. And it still doesn't die. And in what becomes an incredibly agonising passage to read, he has to shoot it again, and again, and again, and he does this to avoid embarrassment, just to avoid embarrassment. He writes, I perceive in this moment that when the white man turns tyrant, it is his own freedom that he destroys. He becomes a sort of hollow, posing dummy, for it is the condition of his rule that he shall spend his life trying to impress the natives, and so in every crisis, he has got to do what the natives expect of him. He wears a mask, and his face grows into it. Now, did this actually happen?" The truth is, we don't know. Obviously, it was written many years afterwards. DJ Taylor, Orwell's biographer, hasn't been able to find any direct evidence. He did find a report of an elephant being shot in the Rangoon Gazette, but according to the article, the Englishman who pulled the trigger was Major E.C. Kenny. Perhaps Orwell read about Kenny, or met Kenny, or it could have been a different elephant. Perhaps there was no elephant at all, or perhaps the newspaper made a mistake. That's why it's probably better referring to George Orwell as opposed to Eric Blair, because Orwell is ultimately a character invented by Blair. Our third and final window into young Orwell's world is Burmese Days, his first novel published in 1934. The story follows Flory, a timber merchant, who seems to act as a stand-in for Orwell himself. Flory lives in Burma and is friends with an Indian doctor, Dr. Paraswamy. At one point in the story, Flory tries to impress a woman, he boasts about shooting an elephant. In Burmese days, the British spend their time at the European club. Dr. Veraswamy wants to join the club because he imagines it as some kind of enlightened symposium where well-read Europeans discuss the state of the world. In reality, the club is a shabby little wooden hut where the Brits drink whiskey, exchange crude jokes and complain about how much better things used to be in the past. The natives, they say, used to be more polite and more deferential before the First World War. The servants, they say, used to ask for less money intended to stay loyal to their masters, whereas now, the club members lament, the only way to keep a servant in your house is to pay them late, so they have to stick around for their salary. Flory and Veraswamy have the same friendly argument every week. Veraswamy tells Flory that the British Empire is developing Burma and civilising its people, while Flory tells Veraswamy that the British only ever taught the Burmese how to play football and drink whiskey while plundering their country's resources. He tells the doctor that, The official holds the Burman down while the businessman goes through his pockets. Buraswami then tells Flory that he's the victim of a smear campaign by a corrupt Burmese magistrate and that the one thing that might save him from this would be if he could be admitted as a member of the European club. He can only say this to Flory because he knows that for a native to ask for a favour outright would be considered an imposition. And within the club, Flory is disdainful of the racism among the British. He hates the way they talk about the natives. The club members sit on a kind of spectrum of racism, and at the very far end is Ellis, the manager of a timber company, who explicitly hates the natives, makes no effort to hide it, and describes them using vulgar racial epithets. And at the other end of the spectrum, there's Flory, who hates what the British are doing in Burma, but when he's handed a petition to explicitly keep Dr. Veraswamy and all other natives out of the club, he signs it without hesitation, because, as much as he likes the doctor, he doesn't think Indians are worth fighting for. He doesn't want to have to have the argument with Ellis, it's just not worth it for him. So we see in this novel one of the ways in which racism is contagious, because each member of the club can almost launder their bigotry in contrast to Ellis, that is, against the most prejudiced person in the room. And this even, I think, applies to Orwell, the author of this novel, who talks about yellow faces and yellow babies in passages that haven't aged well, that are kind of patronising and infantilizing towards the people of Burma. But I wanted to talk about the connection between Orwell's life in Burma and his landmark novel 1984, which came out many years later. And there's one passage in Burmese days that stands out here. Remember, Britain at this time likes to think of itself as a liberal democracy. In Britain there is freedom of speech and women have recently been given the right to vote. But at the same time the country has colonies all over the world which function as dictatorships, where there is no self-determination because you can't vote the British out of the country. This only makes sense if you exaggerate superficial divisions between white and non-white people. And that can only end in oppression, prejudice and bitterness. And this system of empire, Orwell thinks, crushes the imaginations of the men who police it. Because as we've seen, these men have to wear a mask and eventually their faces grow into it. He writes that it is a stifling, stultifying world in which to live. It is a world in which every word and every thought is censored. In England, it is hard even to imagine such an atmosphere. Everyone is free in England. We sell our souls in public and buy them back in private, among our friends. But even friendship can hardly exist, when every white man is a cog in the wheels of despotism. Free speech is unthinkable. All other kinds of freedom are permitted. You are free to be a drunkard, an idler, a coward, a backbiter, a fornicator, but you are not free to think for yourself. One question I wish I could answer is why? Why, when Orwell could have left Eton and gone to Cambridge or Oxford, did he choose Burma? 30 years later, Orwell was asked by his wife, Sonia, Why Burma? Why not Oxbridge? And Orwell said, it was a long story, but he would tell her later. He never did. My guess is that as a scholarship student at Eton, he would have probably needed another scholarship to go to university. But at Eton, Orwell just wasn't that good. He performed badly in exams, we know he came bottom of his class in Latin, and he didn't seem to make much of an effort. And I think it's possible that while in Burma, he came to regret this. In Burmese days, Flory falls in love with an English woman who he has almost nothing in common with, because in passing she mentions that she used to live in Paris and used to read Proust. In Burma, Flory doesn't know anybody who reads the same books that he does. It turns out that, like the rest of the British, the woman he's fallen for is disgusted by Burmese culture. She has no curiosity whatsoever, and Flory has vastly overestimated her interest in literature. In one of my favourite sentences in Burmese days, Orwell writes, it is one of the tragedies of the half-educated that they develop late, when they are already committed to some wrong way of life. Flory certainly felt trapped within the imperial system, and I can imagine that Orwell did too. But maybe, even if it felt like a tragedy at the time, not going to university helped set Orwell apart from his peers. Unlike most of the British literary intelligentsia, he didn't just read about empire and despotism in books, magazines and newspapers. He was on the front line, and unlike a lot of writers in Britain in the 1930s, he saw empire for exactly what it was. And not only that, he also recognised the horrors of Stalinism long before the rest of the left. And I think it's interesting that when dissidents in Poland and Russia got their hands on smuggled copies of 1984, they couldn't believe that it was written by somebody living outside of the communist system. And so maybe being on the front line of empire at the most impressionable age of his life saved him from groupthink. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, I will make more of them. I promise not every episode will be about a dead white man. I have a spreadsheet of people i wanted to make episodes about and i'm just doing them in chronological order and just like me when i was 20 years old i am slowly tentatively moving towards women i promise so i'll see you next time